The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Good night. Welcome to The Catherine Zox Show. This informative and entertaining show will start your mornings off on the right foot. Here's your host, Catherine Zox, your social worker with the microphone. To the ghosts out in the hall, the paint peeling off the walls. Good night. Sometimes I stand between the sidewalk and the sky. And just staring through the clouds as they pass by You have to leave the ground to learn to fly Good morning, I'm your host, Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone And you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio This morning I'm going to be talking to Dr. Joe Wenke, author of Papal Bull which has been described as a no-holds-barred examination of the Catholic Church. Uh, it will make you rethink what you thought you knew about the Catholic Church. Joe was born the oldest of 11 children. That's right, 11 children in a strict Catholic family in South Philadelphia, attended a long line of Catholic schools, B.A. from University of Notre Dame, an M.A. in English from Penn State, and a Ph.D. in English from the University of Connecticut. Author Joe is a former corporate speechwriter and is owner of a leading event marketing company in New York City. City, Welcome to the show, Joe. Second time I've had you on. Yeah, it's great to be back, Catherine. Thank you so much. Good. Well, how have you been? I've been great, uh, busy. I just came out with Papal Bull. I've got a couple of more books coming out. I'm very persistent, forcing myself on the public. And, uh, <laughs> but, you know, it's good. It's fun to be busy and to do stuff, you know, that you love. Yes, and you're forcing yourself on the religious, I guess, and non-religious public as well. So, yes. Well, this book, I guess, well, it's Pope Francis. I mean, he seems to be the new pope that everybody keeps saying is too good to be true. He's called a reformer. But one of the things that I've heard you say that he may be a new pope, he has a good personality, uh, gets along with people, connects with the public, but unfortunately we have the same church, which I would say is what your book is all about, Papal Bull. Well, exactly. I mean, there are a lot of progressive Catholics who really want the church to change, and they welcome Pope Francis because he has a warm personality. He's outgoing. It looks like he likes to shake things up. He likes to say things that get people talking, and so they're hopeful that he will make real changes in the church. And I, I, I did write a couple of pieces uh, in the Huffington Post and saying, you know, if you want to be a reformer, you do have to actually change something more than a change in tone. So what would those changes be? And, you know, unfortunately so far he has not, at least to me, shown that he will really make changes that, that matter. And I would say with one possible exception, which might be on uh, the church practice of celibacy. That's not something that is considered to be de fide, meaning you need to believe it and it's an eternal truth. In fact, for the first 1,100 years of the Catholic Church, priests could marry and most priests were married. I think that might change because there has been for decades a dearth of vocations. Uh, very few priests, very few 
nuns. And so I think allowing priests to marry uh, is an obvious move, a pragmatic move. If he does allow priests to marry, I'll be interested in seeing if he extends that to nuns as well. In fact, uh, one of the potential areas of change that he's been so disappointing on really is the whole question of the ordination of women. Uh, he's actually come out and said, quote, the door is closed to that and uh, that there is no further discussion. In fact, even in his uh, uh, statement about a week and a half ago, a major statement called an, ap- an apostolic uh, exaltation in which he said he wanted to be more collaborative and was inviting more participation of women. He again said that that issue is not open to discussion. Well, aren't the doors closed to women? Aren't women the last people to get the door opened? I guess that's the way of saying it. I mean, I'm wondering, you know, just kind of like I'm thinking back, I mean, women didn't get the right to vote, for instance, until, what, 1923, 1924, here in the United States. It's amazing, yeah. I mean, black men got to vote, what, 50 to 75 years before we did. There's a black president before there's a woman president. I mean, he's kind of in line with our attitudes. And I'm wondering, I think there's something about him, though, that is changing people's attitudes. Do you have to change the attitude first before you can actually do something? I think that that is encouraging. But, look, uh, there was an inquiry into uh, the Leadership Conference of Women Religious, which is the largest uh, association representing uh, American nuns. And they issued their findings, and they censured that group uh, earlier this year, and that came out under Pope Francis. Uh, The other thing, which is really the most obvious and the most serious issue on which he has not only done nothing but been particularly unresponsive, is on the whole issue of the sexual abuse of children and adolescents by priests. Uh, The U.N. Committee on the Rights of the Child, petitioned the Holy See, which is the governing body of the Catholic Church, which is a party to a treaty uh, which many nations have, have signed, and they're involved in this Committee on the Rights of the Child. They, they asked them to turn over all information about the sexual abuse of children back in July. The Holy See just responded to that request a month late, and was, uh, it was an extremely legalistic and evasive response in which preposterously the C said, we only have authority and responsibility over Vatican City, and it's really the responsibility of local church authorities to investigate sexual abuse. And that's just crazy. It's nonsense. The Pope obviously and the Holy See have the power to make sure that they have all of the information on this, and they should have years ago turned it over to the appropriate authorities around the world so that these people could be prosecuted. I mean, I agree with you. Why do you think he won't do it? What, 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 why won't he do it? I, oh. I, I think there are a couple of reasons. Number one, lawsuits. They're already being sued. If, can you imagine if they turned over every piece of information uh, on this? And uh, it, it, Actually, the original request from the U.N. did not get much publicity, but the Holy See's response has gotten a lot of criticism. And uh, it's available. Uh, you know, anybody can go and read it, download it. It's an incredibly legalistic, evasive response. They provided virtually no information. And I, I think it's also, you know, they're acting like a bureaucracy. Bureaucracies protect themselves. Uh, they're acting as if they can handle it. But how are they handling it? See, the second thing they should do, aside from, I mean, what would any sane person do if they knew somebody was, was raping a child? You'd report that to the police. There are thousands, in 
and thousands of, of incidents of this over decades within the church with tens of thousands of victims. There's a group that represents uh, victims that responded in its own document that estimates there could be as many as hundreds of thousands. So why do you think that why do you think that's tolerated within the Catholic Church? And I don't mean the church itself. I mean with the yes. followers of the church, all these the Catholics, the families, the you know, the, how why do how why do they seem to tolerate this kind of a response from the church? I, know, I was thinking about this today and I don't really have an answer to it because you're asking me initially why are, are is everyone so enthusiastic about Francis? Okay. I don't hear anybody talking about this. Francis has been in the church for a half century, right? What right. did he do through all of those years, first as a bishop and as a cardinal? Have, is there any evidence that he stood up for the rights of children? If he did, I'd like to know about it. What happened in Argentina with regard to this? I don't hear anybody talking about it, but he's not taking the lead. Benedict didn't. John Paul was a disgrace on the whole issue, protecting some of his friends. Uh, like the guy who started the Legionaries of Christ, Marcial Marcial. Delgado uh, was a serial rapist of boys and girls for decades, and he was a big fundraiser. So I think there are lots of complicated reasons why the church has not come clean on this, but I do believe that many people feel that this is a shadow hanging over the church. And so if we're going to talk about reform, let's talk about that. Now, on another topic, a lot of people are encouraged because Francis says, who are we to judge homosexuals? And so some people were thinking the church might somehow be more open to homosexuality. That will never happen. Yeah, see, that's what I thought. I thought, oh, that's a great thing. So, no. Yeah, no. That is traditional <laughs> Christian charity. It's the love the sinner, hate the sin idea, which I view as a form of hate speech, really. Because in this particular case, love the sinner doesn't just mean we're all sinners. Love the sinner means if you're homosexual, you live in a disordered state of being. That's the term that the church uses, meaning that your sexual orientation is contrary to nature. It violates natural law because the purpose of sex is procreation. And now the church does take a different position from a lot of people on the religious right, believing you could be born to homosexual. It's just your cross to bear. And so you can never marry, you can never have sex, but as long as you don't have sex, you haven't committed a sin. Ironically, from my point of view, saying that someone lives in an unnatural state, ontologically, a disordered state, is a more profound condemnation than saying, oh, you did something bad, you shouldn't have had sex with that person. And in, in fact, in the apostolic exaltation that I was just mentioning, um, which is called The Joy of the Gospel, out just a week and a half ago, one of the quotes was uh, Francis talking against moral relativism. And as soon as I heard that, I said, you know something, I'll bet you he's really referring to homosexuality. And if you go to the document uh, and look, that remark is footnoted, and the footnote references a, a statement uh, by the U.S. bishops uh, a few years ago, uh, which was... Um, called Ministry to Persons with a Homosexual Inclination. So it was indeed that. So really, I, you know, here's the point. The church has kind of painted itself into a corner when it comes to reform or change. If you say we're the one true church and our articles of faith are eternal truths, which of the eternal truths ever gets changed? Interestingly, in that document from the bishops, they talk about contraception as being disordered because, again, it's violating the purpose of of sex, which is procreation, and you know, which to me is one of the big lies. You know, the purpose of sex is procreation. Let's think about how many times in our lives when we've had sex that we were actually trying to make a baby. 
In my own case, it's way under 1%, and I have three kids. Now, maybe I'm a little more active than most people, but just do the math. I mean, you know, my parents were married for over 40 years, had 11 children. Okay, if you had sex once a month for 40 years, let's work out the percentage on that. It's not true. I'm no, sorry, it's not true. The no. purpose of sex is sex. It's not procreation. How did you become so smart? Because, you know, you're talking about your parents. You were the, what, the oldest of a, are you the uh, oldest of 11? I'm the oldest. I was there through the whole thing. Yeah, so you've I witnessed been there through the all. whole thing. Yeah. Big Catholic family, right? right parents, yeah. siblings. Um, I'm curious about your other siblings, too. But um, how did, you know, I mean, you grew up with this. You went to a Catholic university. How did you break away? I mean, what was, was there kind of a defining moment for you where you were able to say, wait, this is bunk, I can't believe this? Were you a kid? Were you a... Yeah, I think it was when I hit puberty. You know, you're like 11 and a half, 12, and you start having all these sexual feelings, and you're taught, these are like the George Carlin days of, of Catholic school, which I talk about in the book. It opens as a kind of a little straightforward memoir with lots of little stories, and the rest of the book is a satire, but it's really memoir of satire. The whole thing is really my story. How did I go from the little boy who's pictured on the back cover in a white First Holy Communion suit to being this skeptical, free-thinking, crazy person that I am today? And it's all of the questions that I had, only dealing with them satirically. So, and I think this is what a lot of people, particularly in the baby boom age, went through. You, you wake up one day and you realize you're a sexual being and you're taught in school and in church that if you even have a sexual thought, which was referred to in those days as an impure thought, and you entertain it for a second, you enjoy it for a second, that's a mortal sin. And George Carlin had a whole routine on this, you know, that if you were planning to go to a strip club or actually meet a woman of the night, you might as well forget about it. You've already committed that sin just by thinking about it. Yep, I remember. And, and wanting to do it. So this is totally preposterous. How can you even live if for a nanosecond you entertain a sexual thought, you like it, and you think you're going to hell? So... You know, really, you go through, if, especially if you're devout, and you can tell looking at the picture of me on that back cover, I was a devout, innocent little boy, believing all this stuff. But I think, ironically, it was the sexual repression that led me down the path to freedom of thought. Yeah, and so who'd you share this with? Because you're talking about, here you are, uh, pubescent, yeah, uh, yeah you're so just going through your, well, what are you, 11 years old? Yeah. I mean, was it your siblings, and did you no. talk to your parents? or who? No, you couldn't talk to anybody. That was the horrible thing. I, I would say it took me like eight years to work through the whole thing, and I, I became almost like um, OCD about all of these issues. And, uh, you know, one thing after another, questioning, questioning, questioning. And the fact is you can't break out of that whole world unless you deny the premises of it, because it's, it's as a self-contained you know, set of beliefs, it, it's co internally consistent. You have to just reject the whole, you have to say, this is crazy. This doesn't make any sense. All right, but when you're doing that, and you're a kid, and when you yeah. try to do that, and you're saying these things to your family, to your parents, uh, it, you, you have to reject the whole concept or the whole premise of the Catholic Church? Or they say, but what were your parents' response? You're rejecting them as well, or did they feel that, or what happened? You know, I think that they saw me changing, and it was also tied into other things back in the day, you know, the Vietnam War. And I got into horrible arguments with my father over that and uh, my uncle. And 
it was just, uh, you know, it was also, it was rock and roll and, and all of those things, which so many people went through. That's why I think uh, a lot of people relate to the book, particularly, you know, Catholics, ex-Catholics, uh, people who grew up in, the, in those days. It was a very isolated experience, uh, quite frankly. I mean, when I talk about, you know, what's the first thing I think of when I think of my childhood, how it was very crowded, right? Eleven kids in a tiny row home, maybe 750 square feet, one bathroom. You go to school, you think you're going to escape all of that. No. When my sister Maureen was six, I, t- I talk about this, in her first grade class, there were 100 kids. There was one nun. So you were warehoused, and you sort of went through a lot of stuff in your own head. And the other odd thing was there was all this regimentation in school, but because all, everybody's family had so many kids, nobody knew where you were all day long. And uh, I, like, I walked home from school, to and from school, out through the streets of South Philadelphia when I was five years old. So it was kind of strange. Uh, so I worked through all of this 99% by myself. Uh, yeah, but then you decided to go to, or you went to, a Catholic college. <clears throat> right. So, so what happened? What, here's what that was. <laughs> I was the first person in my family, you know, a Wenke, whoever went to college. And for a Catholic family, the idea of going to college was a big deal, but going to Notre Dame was like the impossible dream. It was a bigger deal than if you went to Harvard or Yale. So I knew I had the ability to do it. So I said, oh, I'm going to do that and make a big splash, like Francis likes to make a big splash. <laughs> but I also saw it as my ticket out of town. Because even though Philly is a cool place and there are a lot of great schools there, I always thought, you know something, if I stay here, I'm just going to perpetuate my high school experience. I'm going to end up at Villanova or one of these places with guys I knew in high school and so forth. I need to get the hell out of here. And so even though it was a Catholic school, it was, it's a great Catholic school, and I was exposed to all kinds of, of different people who came to speak there, and it sort of gave me that space to change. And that's really where I made the transition you know, from being a Catholic to you know, what I'll call a free thinker. Well, you definitely are a free thinker. I mean, <laughs> there's no question. I'm not, I'm not going to challenge you about that, but you're a free thinker. So now where do you get your support from? You know, we're going to fast forward on how many years? Um, uh, too many. Yeah, the papal bull. Uh, what's the response? I mean, you've got supporters and you've got non-supporters, and I suppose, mm. you know, yeah. So what is the response of the Catholic Church to your book, for instance? Well, I, I think it's going to be uh, a mixed response, just as the... Uh, you know, the satire of the Bible is a mix, although I think primarily positive. I mean, I would really rather mix it up more with people who really disagree. Um, I think it makes it more of, interesting. Yeah, I think it's kind of interesting. And, you know, I don't know if this is entirely true, but I think if you're really kind of radical, a lot of people don't want to take you on because they don't know what you're going to say. You know, so like getting on Fox and places like that. I mean, I think it's going to happen. And I would really love to, to get on with a guy like Bill Donahue of the Catholic League, yeah. who's the PR guy <laughs> for the Catholic Church. We sent him a book. So, Bill, happy to, to get on anywhere with you and, and debate all this stuff. I, I think that it's, it's a, a kind of a divisive issue in a way, but it's an issue that needs to be talked about. You know, your faith, what do you believe? Uh, I'm open to anyone believing anything they want to believe. I don't really care. What I care about is if beliefs are an excuse for bigotry. So like with respect to LGBTQ people, whether it's coming from the religious right where, you know, they basically condemn anyone 
who's in that community as choosing, you know, their sexual orientation or their gender identity, uh, as engaged in a lifestyle that's going to send them to hell. All of this is nonsense. It's bigotry. Catholic Church, we, I talked before about how they view it as disordered and contrary to natural law. I mean, again, think what could be more fundamental to who you are as a human being than your sexual orientation and your gender identity? And if that's condemned, what do you think about yourself? I mean, it's, it's very hard for kids to overcome that and to accept themselves and, and love themselves. So I'm against people who, you know, justify their bigotry through their religion. I think that's wrong. Yeah, well, it's judgmental. I think it's a way of controlling people, of keeping people, yes. isn't it? I mean, It's totalitarian. That's it, what I also yeah. have against the Catholic Church. See, and this whole natural law thing is totalitarian. It's amazing. If you read that bishop's document, when they talk about moral relativism, this is what they mean. People who think that something is good or bad based on whether or not it hurts somebody. No, that's not the case with them. There are these rules that are somehow built into the architecture of the universe that we're all supposed to be able to perceive self-evidently. And that's, you know, homosexuality is bad. I mean, really, something's good or bad, depending on if it, if it contributes to your well-being or if it's harmful. And that should be empirically measurable. That's moral relativism as far as they're concerned. The moral relativism, as they define, is really, you know, being egalitarian and thinking for yourself and making your own decisions. And they're Interpretation of natural law is this totalitarian thing where rules are imposed. And even if something doesn't seem to be harmful, I'm sorry. Uh, the creator of the universe just decided that that's the way it has to be. But, I mean, we're the ones who define that, I think, we, uh, yeah. human beings, aren't we? And also, but is the Catholic Church so unique, or does this, would you say, you know, what, what, doesn't this apply to mo- all religions? Whole- I think it does. Uh, yeah. I really think, you know, it, it's, uh, for many people, institutional religion is a kind of prison of the soul. And I think I even said this last time. Uh, I think that institutional religion is about controlling your mind, your genitals, and your wallet. You know, they want to control what you think and believe. They don't want you to have sex. And basically, they want your money. Well, religion is politics. It's just another kind of political framework, isn't it? I I think it is. So that goes back to your question, I think, of, you know, why is the church protecting its own in the sex abuse scandal? Bureaucracies always protect their own. That's the thing that I still don't understand, why individuals, you know, participate in that when they become part of of a bureaucracy or a group. It's sort of like they... They say, you know, we're just following orders, that old expression. And they're, they're willing, for the sake of the institution, to do things that are inhumane and, and that are just unspeakable. I said, well, what is worse than raping a child? And this is the church? What a disgrace. I'm going back to the same question. Has anybody, I mean, you said you've approached like Fox Fox News being, a, but has anybody approached you? I mean, you're out there. You're well known. This is, yeah. you know, this is a, your second book on the topic. Or, right. Yeah. So, I mean, it would seem to me you'd be kind of a scary kind of, you know. I know. what I do shows like yours. I mean, I'm, I'm constantly doing interviews, but if you're talking about from the church's point of view, although we're sending some books out to, you know, the Sirius Satellite Radio stations that are the Catholic station. I think it's going to happen, but I I really think that the whole point-counterpoint thing is very much controlled, even on cable. Uh, There are certain people you see all the time, and there are certain people that you don't see at all. 
And I think if you're a little bit too far out there, it's like you're, you know, you, you can't be controlled. Yeah, so there are some parameters. It kind of appears that you have this kind of open-ended kind of back and forth, but it's not really true. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, that is what yeah. I'm saying. I mean, in fact, uh, there are lots of discussions. There are places that I'm going to be appearing on where the person says, well, you know, we, it's kind of a satire. It's funny. Can you just be serious? Can you just be this? Can you just be that? And people are, are – I was actually booked for you got to be kidding on a Fox morning show when the executive producer found out about it. I was canceled. You know, the producer wanted me on the show. This happened the day before. No, we're not going to have him on. So, you know, it's going to happen, but I, I do think that uh, if you, you take a certain position that is not really within certain boundaries, that, that it's a little bit harder to break through even in, in this day and age. Yeah, I think, though, maybe this is your opportunity with Pope Francis, though, because you're right. I mean, he's like, I mean, he has received, I mean, he's, Somehow he's appealing to the people, and he's received so much press yeah. and, you know, people who were kind of anti-Catholic or anti-church, let's say, or kind of yes. get or slightly – I even got sucked into it a little bit, of course, till I had – now I'm talking to you, but, yeah. <laughs> um, you know, I thought, well, you know, maybe he's a, at least a social reformer. I mean, there is something yeah. to that. Hey, look, I hope I'm totally wrong. I'm used to I do, being, too. I'm used to being wrong. I had two ex-wives who thought I was wrong all the time, so I'm used to being told that I'm wrong. I hope I'm totally wrong about Francis. And I look at my book as a call for reform. You know, um, if you're, a, quote, ex-Catholic, it's sort of like you can never really leave it. You're, you're always part of it, and I'm having my say. I would love for the church to say, you know what, we were wrong. Let's ordain women. Because you can't have any authority or power in the church if you're not a priest. And, uh, you know, it's, it's all well and good to say you want to be more collaborative. Actually, again, if you go to that document, the way that he talks about uh, the importance of having women participate is unintentionally patronizing, talking about, well, women have intuition that men don't have, and there's a feminine genius. All of these things from 40 years ago, uh, it's embarrassing, actually, to read it. Well, I thought I had the, the genius, the feminine genius. That's right. And it talks <laughs> about, you know, fulfilling your your role in life through motherhood, though not exclusively. That was just added. It used to be exclusively that, you know, that's how women fulfill their ultimate purpose on earth, by, by having children. So, look, I hope I'm wrong about him. And, you know, he is more warm and... <laughs> I guess, approachable than Benedict, whose nickname was God's Rottweiler. <laughs> and um, he was the prefect for the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith, which is an office that sort of maintains orthodoxy in the Catholic Church, and it was formerly known for centuries as the Office of the Inquisition. So I'll take Francis over Benedict. I will, too. And on that, we have to say goodbye. Oh, we uh, yeah. start it. Uh, and I'll, I'll, obviously, I want to mention the book again, Papal Bull, Dr. Joe Wenke, an ex-Catholic, okay. calls out the Catholic Church website we can go to. And, of course, you can buy the book online, bookstores everywhere. Yeah, everywhere. And uh, org. follow me on Twitter. It's very funny, too. We didn't get into how funny it is. Uh, well, then, it's very funny. <laughs> and, and everybody should know it's very funny. Buy the book. Get out there. And uh, then we can discuss it another time, you and I. Absolutely. I look okay. forward to that, Catherine. Thank right. you so Thanks, much. All right. Thanks, Joe. Okay. Thanks. Have a great day. Yeah. Well, we're going to take a short break right now. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone. You're listening to The Catherine Zox Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. Don't go away. We will be back in a minute. 
We hear it and read about it every day in the news. Stock prices plunging, home prices receding, and unemployment growing. How can you preserve and increase your wealth in this kind of economy? Tune in to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with host Jay Taylor. Jay will explain the decline of our monetary system and the economy and will give you winning investment ideas and the tools to protect and increase your wealth. Turning Hard Times into Good Times with Jay Taylor can be heard Tuesdays at 2 p.m. Eastern Time, 11 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Tune in to Patricia Raskin Positive Living on VoiceAmerica.com every Monday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time and 11 a.m. Pacific Time. This program brings you practical and inspiring principles for living a more authentic, engaging, and passionate life. Patricia's guests will give you a formula for connecting, giving, forgiving, and miraculous living. So tune in and call in to Patricia Raskin Positive Living Mondays at 2 p.m. Eastern Time and 11 a.m. Pacific Time right here on the Voice America Variety Channel. It's practical, positive solutions for a happy, empowered, and successful life is your business model robust enough in today's ever-changing business environment people are working to transform themselves their futures and their business tune in to business reinvention with your host nancy lynn to stay ahead of the game in business you have to constantly reinvent yourself and your organization with nancy's experience and that of her guest experts you'll learn from stories of inspiration innovation and forward thinking Listen for Business Reinvention, live every Monday at 4 p.m. Pacific Time, 7 p.m. Eastern Time, on the Voice America Business Channel. You're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. If you'd like to join our conversation this morning, call now. The toll-free number is 866-472-5788. That number again is 866-472-5788. Welcome back. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to the Catherine Zox Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. Well, joining me this morning is my second guest, Lonnie Hall Albert, born and raised in Chicago, a professional vocalist and lyricist at 19, traveled the world as lead singer with Sergio Mendes and Brazil 66. Uh, she recorded 12 albums in English, Spanish, and Portuguese. She, in 1985, she won a Grammy Award for her Latin CD, Es Facil Amar, and she continues to record with her husband, the legendary Herb Albert. Today we're going to be talking about Lonnie's book, her first book, Emotional Memoirs and Short Stories. Welcome to the show, Lonnie. Nice to have you on this morning. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here, Catherine. It's, it is a pleasure to have you, Emotional Memoirs and Short Stories, because I'm always interested in women's stories, and so that's what this book obviously is about. Yeah. Uh, the deep, it was described as the, what, the per, deep, deep, digging deeply into the inner lives of women and artists. Um, it's an urban anthology, um, investigating that fine line between creative fact and personal fiction. So, um, I guess my question is, I mean, you and I are kind of in this, are, are in the same age group, baby boomers. Um, why write a book? Why now? This is your first attempt. Well, I, <laughs> you know, I, I, I've been writing short stories since the early 80s, and I just put them in a drawer when I was finished. You know, I really didn't have any um, 
I, I didn't have any plans for 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 uh, my writing. I, I I just wrote all. I've written all my life. I've written my impressions, poetry. But as I said, in the early '80s, I started actually writing short story form, and um, I would just put them in drawers. And for about thirty years. Uh, they sat in drawers, and I just kept writing. And uh, a friend of mine was um, recovering from a surgery that she had, and she was getting bored, and she said, do you have anything for me to read? And I said, well, I actually do have a story about my uh, bout with illness. And uh, I pulled it out of a drawer, and I gave it to her, and she was so encouraging to me. She kept saying, well, do you have any more? Do you have any more? And I ended up giving her all my stories, and she said, you know, I think you have a book here. And uh, I looked at, re-examined them and re-edited them, and then I started writing this narrative throughout the, uh, that connected all the short stories together. Why do you think, I mean, it was she that you shared the stories with. I mean, it sounds like that was the first time you had shared the stories. Yeah. She was ill. You were obviously, I guess, I mean, you're empathizing with her. There must have been something in your writing that you felt would be helpful to her. Well, I I had written a story about my bout with Epstein-Barr virus and my my, um, breast implant, uh, breast implants and removal of those breast implants, how they they made me sick and they created this autoimmune problem in me. And I felt that if she read something, you know, that kind of, you know, made her not feel so alone, uh, it might may, it might help her, and and it did. I mean, she was she was very happy that I went through all of that. I think, <laughs> but um, uh, it did help her, and and it helped me too because she gave me a, a, an idea for a book, and um, I just never had really I, I've never I'd never thought of that, and uh, when I wrote this narrative that connected all these stories. I felt like I had something, and so that's what made me go on. Yeah, so when she, I guess in, in trying to help her, she like, obviously helped you. Yeah, and, she did. Yeah, you know, propelled you to do this because this is, I mean, I love the book because, I mean, I, each one of the stories has to do with the power that women possess, and, and um, maybe we should talk about maybe one or two of the stories individually as an example of, of, uh, of the memoirs. Well, um, the the memoir section of the book is this narrative that I wrote that connects all these stories. There are three nonfiction stories, and the rest are fiction. So um, my imagination is uh, all over the place in this in this book. And uh, there is a story um, that uh, I think that most of the women in this book have reached a point in their lives that. Um, their life isn't working for them anymore. It was working for them, and they had built their whole life around those ideas and those feelings, but now they, their life doesn't work for them anymore. They're not happy, and they don't know why, and they don't know what to do about it, and it scares them because they're in relationships, and they're reexamining every part of their life now because they're not happy. And I, I think it's about women who get lost, and um, who have to redefine who they are. Don't you think that for most of us and for most women that there's always some point at which we feel lost? Maybe it's more exaggerated or it's more difficult for some women than others. But, you know, if you live long enough, there's always a point at which you feel like, well, I have to make a change or, yeah, uh, yeah, and how am I going to do this or will I have the strength to do it? 
Yeah, and and, li- and life is all about change. I mean, you know, when you think about yourself when you were in your 20s, you're not that person anymore. And if you're married and you're, you have a relationship that is deep and meaningful, you're both going to change within that relationship. And if you don't grow together, and you, you, know, you can easily grow apart. And so a lot of these women are faced with that. You know, do I want to continue this relationship just because I, I was, it was working for me? How do I, how, what do I do now? I mean, how, how should I maneuver my way around my life now to try to get to my own happiness? What does that mean I'm going to lose? What am I faced with? And that's what these women are faced with. And what about you, you, your relationship? I mean, you have been together for a long, long time with your husband. Um, we're we're going to be celebrating our 40th wedding anniversary on Sunday. Well, congratulations. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> That's exciting. And two exciting people, to, I mean, two people, successful people. I mean, you talk about changing and evolving. Um, what I mean, your forty years is a long time. Yes. So if you're different now, I'm assuming that he's different now, yes. and that you've evolved together. Yes. So how has that worked for you, for both of you? Well, one one thing that I've always recognized in our relationship is that when either of us are going through some kind of growth spurt or change. Um, we both seem to go through it at the same time. But not, we don't seem to go, go in the same direction at the same time, but we're going through something at the same time, and we can relate to it. Um, we, can, we, we talk about it. We listen to each other. And we, you know, we work it out. I mean, if, if, if we're in disagreement, we'll be in disagreement. We'll agree to disagree and, uh, until, it, until we can reach some kind of common ground, and then our hearts will open again. You well, know? Lonnie, did ever, what, when you talk about it, I guess, what would be some of the it's, like those, the points at where we're going through it, and we're going to work it out, we're going to talk it through, and then we'll go on, and... We well, I mean, you know, for one thing, when I when I got Epstein Barr virus, I mean, you know, was my, that a result of the breast implants? Yeah, I think so. I think it was because at the time that I had them, there was all this controversy going on about women and autoimmune dysfunction, and they were all, you know, there, there were a lot of lawsuits for Dow Corning uh, in the '80s and '90s, and there probably still are. I haven't really followed it since then, but. Um, that's what made me turn around and say, I, I think I need to get these out of me because, uh, well, I never really related to them much anyway. But well, that was, I was going to go back and ask you, why did you get them in the first place? You know, I'll tell you, Catherine, it was, you know, when I think back on this, it was, it was a mindless decision. I just thought that uh, people were doing it, and I thought, you know, I had little breasts, and I thought that they were, you know, maybe my costumes would look better on me when I'm singing. I I, I don't even know what I was thinking, but I did this. I walked right into an uh, uh, operating room and did an elective surgery that hurt me, you know, without thinking about it too much, without researching it enough, without... I, I just, I, it was a mindless decision on my part, and uh, I just went in and I did it. And I thought, okay, this will be fun. Yeah. <laughs> you know? And and it was a uh, was it, it was a disaster from a, the beginning. 
I mean, let's say if you hadn't gotten Epstein-Barr, I mean, like you say, you got it because you thought you would look better, and when you were singing, you would, you know, your costumes mm-hmm. would fit better. What about Herb? What did he think? You know, he was never, he didn't want me to get them. He said, you know, I don't think, I don't think this is a good idea. And I, oh, no, it's okay. You know, I mean, it was this, <laughs> I don't even know who I was then. But it just, I just wanted to do it. And I thought it would, uh, I, I don't know if I thought it would bring some type of uh, confidence to me or, um, um, I, I don't know. I don't know what I was thinking. I, I, I wasn't thinking. I know that. And so um, I did it. And uh, about, I would say, I mean, just the, the entire time that I had them in, which, is, which was about eight years altogether, I wasn't feeling well. And I just didn't attach it to the breast implants until this controversy started. And I started hearing about these women that were starting to, you know, lose their health. I'm just so curious because here you were, here you are, still are, but were, you know, very sick. And I go back to this, seemingly, you know, you are successful. You're doing what you want to do and following your passions and all this kind of stuff. And then you have these implants in, put in, you're not mm-hmm. feeling well, you don't relate it to those, but did you feel better about yourself? Like now I have big Absolutely breasts? Absolutely not. No. Absolutely not. I didn't dress differently. I thought I would dress more seductively or something would happen. Some, some different. <laughs> <laughs> and I didn't, I didn't recognize the image that I had. You know, when I, when I would pass a mirror, I would turn and turn my head and I didn't see that image as me. It was like I was um, wearing these implants, or you know, or they were wearing me. You know, I yeah. mean, it it was uh, it was very strange, and I never I never uh, bonded with them. So they were always physically and emotionally like not part of who you are, part of your psyche, or they were not they were not part of me. They were they were these plastic things sitting on my chest. That's what they were, and that's what they felt like, and that's what they looked like to me. Um, but uh, I I kept them for eight years, and uh, finally, um, for about the last six months, uh, that's when all this controversy started, and uh, I just went to my my doctor, and he told me, no, no, these are hysterical women, you know, <laughs> and wait until there's this moratorium is up, and and finally, I, I, I asked myself what I should do, is what I did. I finally asked myself, should I get these things out? And the, my inner voice said, absolutely. And that's when I called the doctor and I said, I don't really care what the moratorium uh, suggests. I, I want these out. And then once you did it and they were out? Was it instant? You felt better. Yes. Yes. I, I, um, I physically, uh, you know, I had, I had, I had Epstein Barr virus, so I didn't. It wasn't like this miraculous moment that I jumped up <laughs> off the table. Hooray! <laughs> <laughs> and you know, started screaming hallelujah. But I mean, um, I, I think that uh, once I got them out, I felt more myself. I felt that I connected more to who I am. And uh, that alone made me feel better. And then I had to recover, 
you know, I had to recover from from this uh, virus that I had. I mean, that's quite a story, and I, I think it, well, it's so relevant today because I see and and um, well, as a social worker, but as a therapist, I mean, some of these young girls at age. 16 or 18 years yeah. old who are getting these breast implants. Now, I don't know the rap is that they're better for them and, you know, that they've been improved upon and all of that, but, yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah, I don't know. I, I just think that, you know, uh, as people, you know, we, we have to go through, we have to accept the consequences for our, you know, for our decisions. And and sometimes, you know, they're not, they're not what we hoped they would be. And uh, I think... I think that these putting something foreign in your body is not something that I would choose to do. Yeah. yeah. Well, in this case, it wasn't irrevocable. You could change that. I mean, you're talking about reaching certain. Well, this is the example of reaching a certain point in your life where you had to make a change, but you yeah. made the change. Many mm-hmm. women don't make the change for whatever reason. They mm-hmm. just keep they on. Can't do it. Yeah. They can't do it. Yeah. And they just continue to do what they've always done, and it still doesn't work, but they can't make that change. Yeah, it's um, too scary. And, it's, and, and a lot of women in the, in the stories, they, it's just too scary. They just, they really don't know what to do. I mean, for example, there's a, there's a story about, in my opinion, it, you know, it's, it's, it's about postpartum depression, but you don't know that until you reach the end of the story. But this woman is, is, is in her house having an argument with her husband, and she turns around, she walks out, she goes into the garage, she gets in her car, and she leaves. And she's got a, you know, she, her husband thinks that she was just taking a, a break, and she leaves. And, and, and I had seen uh, an interview on television of a woman that did that, and that's what gave me the idea to write a story like that. I was so intrigued by, oh, my goodness, what happened to her? What did she do? She didn't tell her husband where she was going. She didn't say anything. She just disappeared. And, uh, and so my imagination took hold, and, and, uh, it, and, it, and it took her somewhere. And, and I think a lot of women, you know, reach a point where it's either a breaking point like that would be, you know, I, I got to get out of here, and she just jumps in her car and leaves, or, you know, or I have to confront this, or I or I'll go numb and I won't do anything. Yeah, I think that's a good example. And I said, well, postpartum depression is one of those things that very often gets dismissed, not only by yeah. your partner or your husband or the physicians or whoever yeah. it is who's yeah, as uh, something that will go away that really isn't a problem. And then you know, yeah. it's very real. Yeah, it is very real. Very real, and it really needs to be addressed. You're in a lot of trouble when you when you're in that. That that place and and uh, you know it, and this woman in in the story you know knows that she must face her husband and talk about the loss of their child because that's what happened to, to her in her particular uh, in her particular case but to get the courage up to really face something that's so painful and 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 to hope that you're not going to be judged or um, uh, start, start a whole situation that is so unpleasant or that you might lose the person that's on the other side of you, it's, it takes a lot of courage to turn around and do, okay, well, I'm willing to do anything I can to change this. And, uh, and take a risk. Yeah. Do, do you think, Lonnie, that men, when they're faced with, with 
changes um, kind of respond in the same way, or is it different for them? I don't know. I think think that women really feel um, the need to uh, communicate verbally. And I, I think that men have a harder time with that. I think that you know you 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 have to um, you have to work at it and kind of move into that arena to feel, to start feeling comfortable with talking about feelings. So um, I think it's easier for women. That's my experience anyway. Well, maybe it's related to your title, emotional memoirs. Mm-hmm. The word emotional, I guess. Yeah. When I think of emotional, I think of women. Not that men aren't emotional, but yeah. that seems to be kind of the overriding description of the you know of the memoirs, emotional memoirs. Yeah, um, it is an emotional memoir. It, it isn't your you know uh, the regular uh, a regular memoir. I mean, it it is a emotional impression. Even my impressions of Chicago as a young girl growing up there are more um, uh, in the emotional realm than the um, concrete, you know, than the, uh, it, 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 I, I write about the light in Chicago. I write about the, uh, the buildings and what they represented to me and uh, the, the, the strength that I gathered from them growing up in a, in a um, volatile household. And so I, I, I write about the city in an emotional way as well, as well as the, uh, the stories. Yeah, and it really does come across. I've spent, I have a lot of family, including a son in Chicago, and I've spent a lot of time ever since I was a young girl in Chicago. But the way you describe the scenes and the feels and the smells, it really, I mean, it made me, I just brought back a lot of memories. I think, didn't you say you got on a, on the L and you just went through the different communities mm-hmm. and, yeah. yeah, in the summertime and yeah. watching? Did you do that? Yeah, I like that description. But Did then you do you, that? Yeah. Did you get on the L and go through those neighborhoods too? I, yeah, I definitely, yes, I did. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, it's really an education. It is an education. It is. Yeah. You were also saying that well, you were in therapy for 10 years. Was it, was it during that period of time that you were in therapy? In Chicago? I, I, there's one piece in the book. I, I'm, now I'm, maybe I'm confusing it with one of your characters. Oh, but, no, no, no. I've been, I've been in therapy all my life. I okay. Mean, I, that, 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 but that, there is one story in my book uh, called Standing Appointment that is about bad therapy oh. and, and uh, how dangerous it is to, um, uh, to, to give your trust and your faith to someone you don't really know. And in this story, it, it shows that uh, the, 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 the doctor was much sicker than the patient. And uh, she just didn't know it, and and it's it's uh, it's it's an interesting story built all around dreams, dream states, and uh, um, and with my experience with therapists, um, I uh, I have had bad therapists and I've had good therapists, and the bad therapists, I, you know, unfortunately I was innocent and didn't realize what was going on here, and. Uh, um, 
it took a, a, a while for me to, to realize that this person was <laughs> needed help. Ne- needed more help than you needed. Yeah. But it's, it, that's, not, that's very difficult to extricate yourself from that kind of a, a situation. And I just had somebody, a friend of mine, whose uh, uh, daughter is in that position. And, oh. is the, and, and how does she get out of it? Or how do you pick another therapist and not get yourself in the same situation with somebody? Because she's fairly young, um, not... Yeah. Yeah. Very tough. How old is she? Early 20s. Yeah, that's very tough. It is uh-huh. tough because you haven't really, you haven't really settled into yourself yet enough to trust yourself, especially if you're going to a therapy. I mean, that's why I went to therapy. I mean, I didn't trust myself enough to ask myself, uh, you know, the questions that I was asking a therapist. I didn't trust myself, my answers enough. And, um, it was, you know, I mean, in a way, it's good because you you're forced to look at, uh, like, a, like I said before, about decisions that you make and the consequences of them. I mean, that you give your faith and your trust to this person, and they don't deserve it. Yeah, well, and you do that. I mean, I think particularly maybe with, I'm getting back to the gender thing, but I think with women and the issue with authority figures and, you know, here you are, and you're obviously you're vulnerable, you're going into therapy, but like trusting authority figures and being, yeah. and I think that's, that is an issue that. And, that... and therapists, I, I mean, you know, they, if they're not, if they're not that good, they're not going to be thinking about transference and, and what that means, you know, how important that is to these patients. And, and uh, uh, in, in this story, it's, um, it, really, it really shows um, how fragile uh, people are. And it doesn't take much to just push them over the edge. Mm-hmm. And, and, and what, what encouragement and what um, criticism the differences can do to a fragile psyche. Well, your stories are very sensitive. I was going to say raw, too, but there's, there is that kind of lyrical sensitivity. And, uh, of course, I think, you know, as a woman, I identify with many of those stories in your own memoir. But... Um, I want to, we only have a couple minutes left, so I, I, I want to make sure that, uh, I know you have a website? I do, LonnieHall.com. That's easy. <laughs> <laughs> That's not going to take too long. LonnieHall, yeah, okay, .com, Emotional Memoirs and Short Stories. And it's also on Amazon.com. Okay. And, and when's your next book? Well, I'm actually working on something right now, and I'm I'm really not sure what it's turning into yet. But um, <laughs> I'm uh, I'm I'm just gonna see what what develops here. It's organic. It's evolving. Yes, it's organic. It's evolving. And and I write the way I sing. You know, I I've always been very visual with lyrics, and so I I can actually see the story of a lyric unfolding and it's the same with with writing i i write and i can actually watch it like i'm watching a movie what's where it's going and so um i never know <laughs> where, where it's going <laughs> so we'll just have to kind of tune in as it goes or wait for the next story right yes <laughs> that's exciting well, I, yeah, right now it's all nonfiction, so I'm 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 thinking that it's probably going to be 
that way. It's about 80. I've got about 80 pages right now. So you're not going to change that. Nonfiction. All of that is nonfiction. So I, I don't know where it's going, though, but, you know, we'll see. Fantastic. Yeah. Well, you've been great. I've really enjoyed talking to you on the show today. I've enjoyed myself, yeah, too. This is, thank you, Catherine. Thank you. Lonnie Hall Albert, and the title of her book is Emotional Memoirs and Short Stories. And uh, you can go to her website, as we mentioned before, and you can buy the book online at bookstores everywhere. So. We are going to say goodbye. I'm Catherine Zox. I'm your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. Have a great week, and we'll see you next Wednesday. We hope you've enjoyed today's episode of The Catherine Zox Show. You can listen live every Thursday morning at 7 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America channel. Want to know more about Catherine? Visit her website at www.catherinezox.com. Be sure to join us next week for more interviews and great conversations with Catherine Zox. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management.